Hi, I'm Vashi Capellos, and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, October 15th. This week, we'll talk to Congressman Richard Neal, the ranking Democrat on the House Ways and Means Committee. This committee may very well decide the fate of NAFTA if a deal is reached. Then we'll ask Ontario PC leader Patrick Brown why he's taken discussion of social conservative issues off the table for his party. And we're launching a new occasional series we're calling Food for Thought, a conversation with politicians on the Hill at their favorite Ottawa hangout spot after hours. First up, Kent Hare, the minister responsible for sports and persons with disabilities. But before that, the Prime Minister spent most of last week in Washington and Mexico urging lawmakers there to support NAFTA. Round four of negotiations are underway right now, just outside of Washington. In a moment, we'll talk to an influential congressman who met with Trudeau during his Washington visit. But first, take a listen to what President Trump had to say about NAFTA during his Oval Office meeting with Trudeau. We're negotiating a NAFTA deal. It's time after all of these years. and. We'll see what happens. It's possible we won't be able to make a deal, and it's possible that we will. Uh, we have a great personal relationship, and we have a relationship now as, as two countries, I think, that's as close as ever. But we'll see if we can do the kind of changes that we need. We have to protect our workers, and in all fairness, the Prime Minister wants to protect Canada and his people also. So we'll see what happens with NAFTA. But I've been opposed to NAFTA for a long time in terms of the fairness of NAFTA. Uh, I said we'll renegotiate. And, I mean, I think Justin understands this. If we can't make a deal, it'll be terminated. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I want to start with something I hope you can explain to viewers on our side of the border. How crucial is the committee that you sit on, ultimately, in deciding whether a new NAFTA would get approved? Well, all revenue issues in the United States have to originate in the House of Representatives. And within the House of Representatives, they have to uh, first be heard and passed through the Ways and Means Committee, which has broad responsibility for trade and tariffs and tax. So in that instance they, here, the 40 members of the Ways and Means Committee conceivably could help to determine the outcome of NAFTA renewal. And obviously, our Canadian Prime Minister recognizes that. Last week, he met with your committee. I know originally you voted against NAFTA. Was there anything he said to persuade you to support NAFTA? I think that what the Prime Minister said was absolutely accurate, that if we were just to disassociate ourselves at this time, after 23 years of NAFTA, and arbitrarily abandon it, it has the potential to create economic chaos across Mexico, the United States, and Canada. Better to adhere to the position, how do we make sure that the benefits of NAFTA are extended in a more even-handed manner to all members of the American family, understanding that by nature that trade agreements do create those who tend to do very well and others who tend not to do uh, quite so well. So I think a better distribution of the benefits is what we should be focused on. Do you think that is possible at all? And do you think it's possible within the time frame that's been set out? Well, I think that one of the issues that was very apparent is I think most Americans would think that having a bilateral relationship between, the Canada, between Canada and the United States would not be controversial at all. But simultaneously taking into consideration hemispheric responsibilities, the agreement does call for a relationship between the United States, Canada, and Mexico. The uh, Canadians and the Mexicans they seem to be, I think, more effective in pushing back against some opponents who would suggest that NAFTA has not had any benefits at all 
when the truth is I think that there are benefits that have largely in America been more concentrated than we would like. But again, he tried to assuage some of, I think, the concerns that we might have. And that, after all, as we proceed to the fourth round of negotiations after NAFTA, is what our focus should be. Did he assuage any of those concerns? Well, I think there are a lot of concerns that we should have right now. The decision of the United Kingdom to leave European Union is going to have untold economic consequences. You can see it right now in projected growth rates for the United Kingdom, which I think are about 1.9% when much the rest of industrial Europe is now projected to grow by 3%. So there's going to be a lot of hemorrhaging, I think, in the United Kingdom as they attempt to separate themselves uh, from a marriage that for the most part has worked for the rest of Europe. And just bringing it back to NAFTA specifically, when you say you have a myriad of concerns, if you had to identify the most important one, what's necessary for you to support a renegotiated trade deal? I think the big issue for those of us in the United States is manufacturing. I think one can make the argument that agriculture has done fine through NAFTA, but I do think that manufacturing in the United States has taken a bit of a hit. And I think trying to figure out through our tax code or through an international relationship here or through a renegotiated NAFTA, and by the way, there's nothing wrong after 23 years of taking a look at NAFTA, how to resurrect parts of the American manufacturing economy, particularly as it relates to steel and automobile production. And Congressman, when you hear President Trump's rhetoric about the possibility of walking away from NAFTA, what do you take away from that? Well, in the end, con Congress and the Ways and Means Committee, they're going to have considerable sway over this issue. So I think that what the president's position might turn out to be, if he even suggests that the United States should leave NAFTA, to undo that relationship, you would have to go back to Congress, and that would be a much more difficult task for him. How difficult do you think it would be with Congress? Well, I don't want to offer conjecture at this point because I don't know, and I think that it's fair to say that some of the historic alignments as they relate to trade have really been uh, turned in an unexpected direction. So I think that the better argument here is how do we refine some of our thinking and address some of the shortcomings that all acknowledge that NAFTA has created for segments of the American public. Do you think his rhetoric is helpful during these negotiations? I think much of his rhetoric is charged on a day-to-day -day basis, and uh, frequently he reverses the rhetoric that he's already offered. So I think we're going to have to take the longer view here. And when you referenced auto production as a concern, what specifically do you mean? Well, I think that there's considerable evidence that American automobile manufacturers have moved production to Mexico for the purpose of offering lower wages and fewer benefits. And I think that that's well known to all, and I think it's not disputed in any economic forecast, so I think that that's a, an area where considerable work has to be done to make America's automobile uh, sector more competitive right here in the United States. Finally, when you're looking back 23 years ago when you voted against NAFTA, do you think now you would vote the same way? Well, I don't know what the uh, comparison would be other than the fact that uh, 23 years ago I did predict that it was going to have dire consequences for parts of America's manufacturing sector, and that turned out to be the case. The argument now is what do we do about the marriage that we've been in, and do we want to create economic chaos across the hemisphere when many of these issues perhaps could be addressed and fixed? And I must say that Prime Minister Trudeau offered great optimism from a Canadian perspective. Thanks so much, Congressman, for joining us this morning. Delighted to be with you. Thank you.
Ontario's progressive conservative leader Patrick Brown has taken social conservative issues off the table when the party meets next month. This means there will be no reopening of the abortion debate and no sex education policy resolutions. So why has the leader shut down discussion on these issues? Joining me now from Toronto is PC leader Patrick Brown. Mr. Brown, great to have you back on the program. Great to be on the show. I, I wanted to ask you first, can you be specific about what policies are off the table at your convention next month? Well, we're not going to be revisiting any of the divisive social issues. I want our focus to be uh, economic. I want our focus to be about how we can get Ontario uh, back on track. And that's why I said uh, any motions that would um, diminish uh, a woman's uh, right to choose or diminish uh, same-sex, the rights of same-sex couples would not be something that I would uh, um, allow to be debated because, frankly, um, I... I it's, it's, it's not my belief that uh, th those are areas that we should be talking about. I'm uh, proud uh, to support uh, a woman's right to choose and, um, and, and marriage equality. You didn't always, though. In the past, as an MP, you voted in favour of reopening the abortion debate. You also, at one point during your leadership campaign, uh, sided on, on the side of parents who were angry about the sex education policy. So critics are saying this is just a political decision, is it? No, I feel it's the right thing to do, uh, Vassy. And, and frankly, you know, Debates we had in Canada uh, a decade ago, um, I think rather than uh, point fingers at those debates, we should celebrate the fact that right now in Ontario and in Canada, all parties uh, support marriage equality. Um, frankly, you know, if you, if you go back 10 years ago, Barack Obama, Dalton McGuinty, um, at one point even Jean Chrétien didn't support uh, marriage equality. So I think it's a wonderful thing that views have evolved, and I certainly uh, will be uh, proud is, is if I have the honor to be Premier to always defend a woman's right to choose and always uh, support uh, the rights of same-sex couples. So are you saying that, that your views essentially evolved? I, I think my views, like most Canadians, views uh, uh, have, have evolved and I think it's a good thing. I, I think, you know, three years ago I was at the Pride flag raising at Queen's Park and I said, how beautiful is it that everyone is here now. And, and, and maybe it took too long for some to be there, uh, but we can celebrate the fact that in Ontario, that everyone is there. And, and frankly, that's not the case in some countries. That's not the case in some provinces. And um, I can tell you, as I've marched in the last three Toronto Pride Parades and the Ottawa Pride Parade, I've loved it. It's a great experience seeing, frankly, love is love is love, and government has no business um, on, on who you love. Are you concerned at all, though, about isolating, I guess, uh, the faction of your party that is socially conservative by saying, guys, you can't talk about this uh, at our policy convention? No, frankly, I think the vast, vast majority of the party shares my uh, viewpoint. They want to focus on economic issues. Um, so I, I, I don't think it's an issue at all. Frankly, you look at the growth of the party uh, that, that's taken place under my leadership. And, you know, I've made my viewpoints on this crystal clear from, from day one that I, that, that I was leader. One of the first things I did was march in the Toronto Pride Parade. And so uh, during that period, we've taken the party from 10,000 members to now, now we have close to 140,000. And by the end of the year, we're going to have 200,000. We've seen record membership growth. We've seen more people wanting to participate and get involved and volunteer for the party than we've ever had before. So something's working. And I think Ontarians are ready for uh, positive, optimistic, reasonable change. 
I remember when Justin Trudeau was campaigning to be prime minister and he told liberal MPs, look, you can have your own views, but you have to vote along party lines when it comes to abortion. And conservatives at the time were very critical of that. How is this any different? Well, I'm the leader of the PC party and um, I, I'm not going to get involved in previous uh, or, or uh, cast uh, uh, insights into previous uh, federal debates, but, but what I will say uh, is, from my perspective, it doesn't matter if you go to a synagogue, whether you go to an evangelical church, whether you go to a mosque, whether you, you go to a, um, a Catholic church like I do, um, what, what counts is that uh, you want to contribute to Ontario, and your private religious views are, are you're entitled to, is, but I, I, I don't want them to interfere with your work on, um, on, on public service in the legislature. And finally, I just wanted to ask you, I know that uh, obviously it's no secret the Liberals' uh, popularity is not very high. Uh, the same was the case, though, the last in the last election. And I think a lot of your decisions here are being characterized as sort of trying to avoid defeat, your party defeating itself in this election. Uh, how much of what you're doing is about that? And how worried are you that you could, you know, you could sort of make the same mistakes that your predecessor did? I'm, I'm just going to be sincere and honest and, and, and frankly, be myself. Uh, you know, I, I was proud, even before I ran for the leadership of the PC party, years ago, to be the first MP in my city's history uh, in the city of Barrie to attend a pride flag raising. And I'm going to continue to um, just, just be that, be, be myself and speak honestly about where I want to take Ontario, how I think we can do better, how I'm going to help uh, families make ends meet and get ahead. And, uh, and frankly, I, I think if we do that, that and, and explain to the public that Ontario can do better, that, uh, that, that we can turn the ship around, I, I, I think we're going to be in a good position on June 7th. Okay, I'll leave it there. Thanks very much for your time, Mr. Brown. My pleasure. We're launching a new occasional series here in the West Block, and we're calling it Food for Thought. It's where we'll meet up with various MPs at their favorite food or coffee shop or bar off Parliament Hill. First up, Kent Hare. He's the minister responsible for sports and persons with disabilities. Just steps from Parliament Hill in the heart of Ottawa's Byward Market is the Chateau Lafayette, known by locals as the Laugh. Come on down to Lafayette. This is truly the original dive bar. It's the city's oldest pub and it wears its history proudly. It was an easy pick for sports and disability minister Kent Hare. Thank you so much for joining us, Minister Hare. It's so great to have you as our first guest for the inaugural Food for Thought segment. Oh, I tell you what, I'm excited uh, by this. It's uh, great to be here with you, and uh, I know this show is going to be a resounding success. <laughs> I hope so. This is basically sort of my version of what the amazing Tom Clark used to do in his plane, plane talk. I unfortunately don't have a plane, nor do I have any hobbies other than basically watching TV and eating and drinking. So I thought this would be kind of my version of well, that. Well, we, we don't have a plane, but we got here. Yeah. And oftentimes, it's just celebrating life at a place where you can sit down, sure. have a, a bite to eat, share some com conversation, and get through a day with your fellow uh, people you uh, run into on the vagaries of uh, the trail. And we do that a lot on Parliament Hill. It really is, yes. Um, so why did you pick the Laugh for well, us to Laugh do Well, Pub, I've known it ever since I moved to Ottawa when I became a member of Parliament. It's a, a hop, skip, and a jump from where I live, right down in the market. And I was intrigued because when I first saw the sign, it said, Ottawa's oldest pub. And it was start, established in 1849 eight years before Ottawa actually became a city. 
way before we became a country. And I know one of the signs said, Sir John A. Macdonald slept here. And when I talked to the bartender the first time I was in, they said, we don't know whether it was in one of our rooms or whether it was on the floor. <laughs> so that immediately attracted to me. It's a place where uh, vagabonds, rogues, princes and paupers can all hang out share a laugh and come in and enjoy an evening. It's really a, a wonderful spot where everyone is welcome. And what's your meal of choice here? You know, I usually come in here about once every couple of weeks. Usually, uh, you know, sometimes life as a parliamentarian can be stressful. What? Yes, it can be. So we'll come in here uh, with some staffers the odd, once every couple of weeks and I'll get the sliders mm -hmm. with the order of yam fries. And yam fries are maybe the world's most perfect food. You know, <laughs> what makes say, them the most oh, perfect food? Just a crispy, tasty, yeah. you put a little chipotle sauce on them. The day never happened. <laughs> yeah, you have yourself a couple of yam fries, the day never happened, everything's good in the world. Yeah, all, all your stress just melts away. Yes, yes, yes. Perfect. Thank you so much, Ty. And Thanks I hate much. to do this to you. I'm going to need one more Chipotle because <laughs> Chipotle is a whole other food group. Thank you very no, much. Really, really. So you said that you sometimes come here to get away from a, what can at times be a stressful day. What stresses you out in this job? Well, sometimes uh, when you're on the job, you'll have a, a constituency issue that uh, is particularly concerning. Maybe you have a pressure someday as a, a cabinet minister, you go through the cut and thrust of question period and doesn't go quite as well as you, you hoped, whether uh, you have some meetings with uh, your bureaucrats and you're trying to drive a policy option forward that doesn't have a clear path and yet you want to see it go through because uh, you believe it'll better the lives of the citizens of this great country. And so after a, a long day of that, sometimes you want to just come into a place that re relax and is out of the sort of the bright spotlights of Parliament Hill. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is that place for me. So what is something that uh, that people, you think people don't know about life as a cabinet minister? Like, What would surprise people to know about what you do? I, I think people know that it's a tremendously uh, busy job. You are essentially on the go uh, 12 hours a day, you know, going here, there and everywhere. You largely have no idea what you're doing from day to day. And that's the exciting thing about it. You can have a, your schedule at the start of the week that can change uh, from day to day and you can be on a plane, train or an automobile anywhere in this country at a moment's notice because that's what the pressures of the job dictate. But yet I think it's also understanding that it's quite a thrill. You get to share your life with Canadians from coast to coast to coast and, and have that chance to connect with them. That is really the, the thrill of it for me, is not only public policy, which I enjoy, mm -hmm. but actually connecting that public policy to how individuals in this country and their families are going to go forward. And I think people would be surprised at how much opportunity you get to actually sit down and discuss the interaction of policies and people's lives and it's truly been a thrill to do that. So your portfolio recently changed. You were in Veterans Affairs, yes. now you have a new portfolio. Some people sort of characterize it as a bit of a demotion. What do you think? What's uh, that's, your... that's absolutely, uh, you know, where I am right now as the Minister of Sport and Persons with Disabilities, it's a thrill. I know 
varies two parts of my life. You know, yeah. I know a lot about sports. I grew up playing sports. I have played junior hockey. I know how it impacts kids and families and communities across this country. I also know the significant impacts of disability, both on individuals and families across this country. And let's remember that those two buildings blocks, if you get involved with sports and participation and kids uh, learning through play, you got a better opportunity to build your life in a successful fashion. Also, let's remember that one in seven Canadians have a disability. If you look at those numbers, the responsibilities of, of this, this ministry playing a meaningful role in moving a healthy society forward, as well a more fair society forward, I would argue that this is a very important ministry that uh, will stand uh, beside all uh, many other departments in what we do and how we're going to impact people's lives going forward. It's really exciting work we're going to be doing. I know you bring a lot of life experience to that role. Uh, I know a lot about your history, having covered you in Alberta and since, but for people who don't, for Canadians who are watching who aren't sure about your personal story, if you could sort of sum it up in 30 seconds, what would you tell me? Hey, I grew up having uh, every advantage in the world. Both my parents were very engaged in their kids' lives. Uh, they were school teachers. I went to local public schools, played hockey, baseball, swimming. It was really a glorious childhood. Graduated from high school, played junior hockey, started going to post-secondary education, playing college hockey, and then uh, all of a sudden the music stopped. I was the victim of a random act of violence on, uh, in uh, October of 1991. That left me a C5 quadriplegic. Nothing I had done in my life up to that date had prepared me for that day. My family and I were left with some supportive friends some help from government to try and rebuild our lives. And that's sort of the journey that has brought me here. I know for a fact that this journey has been an awesome one. I know that without, uh, I know that good public policy has enabled me to be here. And so if I can bring some of that understanding of what it's like to struggle, to try to get more people involved in an inclusive way, to try and build their families' lives, I think it's important work that we can do. Are there still struggles that you face, like in this job, for example? Um, any access struggles, anything like that? Or? Well, of course, Serge. And you know, we're, uh, we're just uh, doing a makeover of yeah. Parliament Hill. Because that building was uh, built uh, many, 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 many years ago. It's not that accessible, not that easy to get around, uh, all of those things. So we're making over that Parliament Hill. It'll be ready in 10 more years. And that we're doing that in an inclusive way. It's going to allow more Canadians to take part in uh, the People's House. You know, but that's what we're looking to do with our historic disability legislation, our accessibility legislation. We're going to do the, take that lens and try to build a more inclusive Canada that will allow us to take federally regulated industries, everything the federal government does, from the services we deliver to the goods we buy to the buildings we occupy, have that inclusive nature to them. So they're built right the first time. The services are provided the first time. So people with uh, disabilities and exceptionalities can make their way through the lives and achieve their hopes, their dreams, and their aspirations in a more fulsome fashion. That's what I'm so excited about. Was it ever hard not to be bitter about what happened to you? I, you know, look, you're, I, I think when it happened, uh, you're always 
you struggle. You wonder, uh, you know, why did this happen? What happened? All of those things there. But I also, through that process, also understood that I was extraordinarily lucky. You know, to have my parents, my family, my friends, to live in Canada where uh, many people had contributed to a social safety net through public health care, an ability to get help and assistance uh, through social services and social agencies that other countries uh, did not have. You know, I will say getting to a new normal was more difficult. I'm always grateful for the experience of life. Okay, always grateful. Even, uh, you know, within uh, a couple of days after this incident, I, I knew I was grateful to be alive. But I think the struggle of getting to your new normal, what, who you are and how you're going to build your life, that took about 10 years. So, you know, but day by day, things got better. Try new things. Go back to school. Make new friends. Explore new opportunities. Eventually, uh, get a law degree and become a lawyer. All those things don't come easy and uh, they take time. But in where I am today and the appreciation I have for the entire experience of having a disability has been tremendously rewarding. Now look here, I wouldn't have chose to have a C5 quadriplegic, but now that I've been through it, I don't think I'd choose not to have it either. Really? The experience has been wonderful and has taught me more about myself, about sharing your life with people, about understanding the struggle of other other people and I think it allows me a little bit of that concept and that understanding that I possibly wouldn't have had. I thought I thought life was always pretty easy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I, I, slack. I I picked my parents well. You know? I did that remarkably well. I you know <laughs> and things just tended to work out for me because I was pretty good athlete, reasonably smart, you know, all those things things came easy for me. Right. So what have I had that understanding of how people had to struggle? I hope so, but possibly not. And now this puts a good frame on what we need to have a society, or we as a society have to do to have more people be successful, more people who have difficult challenges and maybe had less ability to rely on others and a support network built in. What's the most important thing it taught you about yourself? I, I think it's always just uh, keep on trying to go forward. Look, you can't fear failure. Okay, and that's sort of where it is. I remember the most difficult conversation I had was with my dad about nine months after I had my disability, where I said, Dad, what the heck am I going to do with my life? And he said, I don't know, son. No, I really don't. But you can always go back to school. And, you know, I could sort of hemmed and hawed, say, well, do I really want to go back to school? It'll be hard. It'll be difficult. All of those things there. But... You know, but it was more just me being scared of a new circumstance, trying hard again. But, you know, the decision to go back, you know, eventually that was the right thing to do and not to put it out. To then try going on, joining different boards and committees. You're always nervous the first time you go. Second time you go, it's a little easier. Third time you go, it's old hat. So I learned through that process, yeah, always go. You know, 80% 80, 80 of life is showing up. And if you show up, you're going to get good at the other 20%. And too many people don't do that. And I think from the experience I've had, I've learned that the showing up is really the most important thing, and you'll learn it from there.
And have you, that sort of served you as well in politics and especially like, you know, I remember covering you as one of three provincial liberals in the legislature. Now you're in the federal cabinet. It's being present. It's being present with your constituents. It's being present when people are sharing their concerns. It's being present when you want to deliver a message about what your government is doing. Your presence and your, your sense of direction and self and how you communicate that has to be part of you in this business or else you're not, you don't come across as being real or genuine. And the one thing I do love is being with my constituents. There's nothing that gives me greater joy than going to the grocery store, the restaurant on a Saturday afternoon and spending time with them. It's a, a, a real thrill. It, Are they uh, always nice? Because No, they're not always nice. It's not easy being a liberal, I, I would guess, in Alberta. It's getting easier. <laughs> it, it's getting easier. I can tell you that. But you go you go there and they, and they many times they want to talk. Many times they want to share their heartfelt gratitude. And also sometimes they want to share their concerns. And that's the right. And you, after you've been in this business 12 years, I'm kind of the guy. I don't mind if they're talking to me nicer, talking to me uh, about issues that they're concerned about the government doing, as long as they're talking to me. <laughs> That's part of it. We're, we're continuing that conversation about building a better Canada and hearing different viewpoints. Because when we all think alike, no one thinks very much. And that's what I learned a long, long time ago. That sums it. Thank you for talking to us. Hey, I appreciate it. There we go. This has been fabulous. Thank eh? you. Perfect. Thanks, Minister. You got Great to see you. Great to see appreciate you. it. I'm Vashi Capellos. Thank you for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, go to our website, globalnews.ca forward slash the West Block. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter and tune in again next week for another West Block podcast.